Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's great to see all of you here this morning on this Sunday before Christmas. It's going to be a great day. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, I wanted to start, like I said, this is the Sunday before Christmas. So this is the fourth Sunday in the Advent season. And maybe during the season you've noticed our Advent wreath up here. And I don't know if you all grew up in the church or if you grew up in a tradition that didn't celebrate Advent. But as a kid, I just remember that Advent was really just uh, the way to mark until I was going to get to open my presents, right? Um, Because you start with uh, one candle, the four candles on the side, and each Sunday you light a different candle. And those four candles represent hope, joy, love, and faith. By the way, I didn't learn that in seminary. I had to go out and learn that on my own, okay? I'm just saying. So there's a lot of money invested in that education, and I couldn't even learn what those four Advent candles actually stood for. But faith, hope, joy, and love are what those four candles stand for. And then the white candle in the middle will be lit on Christmas Day, and that candle represents the coming of Christ. And so that's why we light it on Christmas Day. Advent... um, became part of the Christian tradition around the fourth or fifth century um, after the resurrection of Jesus. And at that time, the, the middle candle, the recognition or the preparing of the coming of Christ, had more to do with Christ's second coming, when Christ comes again in power and in glory and as the leader of heaven's armies and sets everything in the world to rights. And as time has gone on and through the Reformation, and um, particularly in the last 100 to 200 years, that middle candle, the coming of Christ, is how we anticipate and prepare our hearts and remember that the God of the universe, who needed nothing, lacked for nothing, could have done anything else, but the God of the universe broke through into our world. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians gets this, he nails it in um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And he said that in reference to Jesus, although he was equal to God, as though, though Jesus was equal to God, he did not think of that equality as something to cling to. He didn't hang on to that equality, that divinity, and say, I'm not going down there. He could have. But he didn't. He gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And that's what we prepare to celebrate at Christmas time that the God of the universe showed up. Not because he was down here looking for something like he forgot his wallet or something like that. He showed up out of love for each one of us. And that's what we're getting ready to celebrate this week. The first in John chapter 14, verse 1, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up and take a look. We'll get there in just a second. But this section starts out with Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. And one of my favorite things about putting this sermon together this week was I was thinking about Jesus in John chapter 14, some of the last hours of Jesus' life here on earth. And I was also thinking about Jesus as Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem and prepared to bring him into the world. And so Jesus is responding to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. But I couldn't help but think about Mary and Joseph wandering around the narrow streets of Bethlehem 
and Mary, how troubled her heart must have been knowing that she was getting ready to deliver this baby and there was no place for her to be safely. Jesus was causing his parents fits from the very beginning <laughs> and it never stopped, right? So don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is saying this in response to the disciples. And if we look in what's going on in John chapter 13, this will help us give an idea of what it is that the disciples are so upset about. So Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room. They're celebrating Passover. Now Passover is affiliated with, it has to do with Easter. So I know that it may sound like I'm getting my holidays confused, but it's just what the Bible reading was for today. So we're going to go with it. We're getting it all just boom today. Christmas, Easter, Passover, here we go. So Jesus and the disciples in John chapter 13, they are spending some time together. Now, I am thinking that if you're one of the disciples, think of like your group of friends, and if there's a group of you that do things together, people in the group take on different identities, right? Like there might be someone in the group who is the loud one, or there might be someone in the group who is the, I don't know, the funny one, right? I'm thinking that of Jesus and the disciples and that group of friends, the disciples probably felt that Jesus, although they knew they were starting to put together bits and pieces, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, they, were, they hadn't quite made the connection, and they kind of got it in fits and starts, if you will. But I'm thinking that if they thought of their group dynamic, they probably identified Jesus as the weird one, I think, because of the stuff that Jesus did. I mean, Jesus did stuff that was just plain strange. There was a time that Jesus showed up on the Sea of Galilee just out of nowhere. Hey, you guys, you remember that when Jesus did that? That was weird, right? Or then there was the time where Jesus spit in the mud, spit in the dirt, made it into mud, put it on a guy's face, and then the guy could see again. I don't care who you are, that's weird, right? Jesus hung out with tax collectors. He hung out with sinners. He had conversations with women. He, didn't, he enjoyed having the children come to him and enjoyed spending time with children. He said the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Those were odd things for someone to say. So I have the, a feeling that the disciples were accustomed to Jesus doing things that just frankly didn't make any sense. But this particular night in the upper room. This night was different because Jesus knew that he really only had a few hours left with these guys. And so there was a sense of urgency, right? There's a sense of everything that they haven't quite been taught yet. They really need to get it tonight. And so this was the night that Jesus really just went for it, right? And he took off his robe and he got down and he washed the disciples' feet. And he literally got dirt on his hands from the disciples' feet. And he said, this is how you are to go out and serve others. As I have served you, this is how I want you to go out and serve those around you. This was the night that Jesus brought out the bread and the wine, and he talked about his body and his blood. And this was the night that Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and another one of you is going to deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. And Jesus said, I'm getting ready to go away. And it's not quite time for you to come with me. And after all of the things that had happened in that room that night, I imagine that the disciples looked at Jesus with completely blank stares on their faces. I imagine that they were so confused that they probably couldn't have put together an intelligent question if their life depended on it. 
right, after all of these things that Jesus had done. And so here we find ourselves in chapter 14, verse 1, and Jesus is looking at them. He has to know that they're just reeling, that they're trying to make sense of the things that they've heard. And so Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. And Jesus goes on to say then, he takes the conversation from, it's right here, so the things of the world that they understand, and he's going to ratchet it up, and he's going to put it up here a little bit. He takes those things, and he said, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. And by the way, remember, there is more than enough room in my father's house, and I am going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus has taken this conversation that's had one meaning on an earthly level, and he's taken it, and he's completely taken it to a kingdom perspective. He's completely made this conversation mean something different than what it meant before, because he's no longer talking about the things of this world. Now he's talking about the things that are of the kingdom of heaven. And this is one of the most awesome things about Christianity. It's the tenet of Christianity, and that tenet is that the God of the universe who needed nothing, wanted nothing, there's nothing that we could give to the God of the universe that he actually needs, that he is here, that he came to be among us, that he gave up his divine privileges so that God could be with us. No other religion talks about God that way. With every other uh, faith system, it's about what humans do. It's about our actions and about the things that we do, but only Christianity is about Emmanuel, God with us. That's what the prophet Isaiah was talking about 500 years before this. He was talking about God coming to earth, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, because he had made that decision that he was going to stop at nothing to get us back together with him, God with us. And when Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you. I will come back for you, and there is more than enough room. That's the kind of thing that only God, as Jesus, in Jesus, could say. No other person could make a claim like that. That is God speaking to us. And this truth, this truth that God showed up and was born and lived and taught and then went to the cross and defeated sin and death, it is so profound. It changes everything, but yet those words, God showed up, it's only three words, right? It's pretty simple coming off the tongue, but it changes everything, and it means so much. And as human beings, we have a tendency to make things a little bit more complicated than we need to be. I have a video that demonstrates this. Take a look. I wonder what it would be like to be born in a manger. Yeah. Wonder whatever happened to baby Jesus. He, he grew up. What? Wait. So you're saying that the baby Jesus Christmas story is the same as the adult walk on water Jesus? Yeah. Thanks, honey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow, I just never really put the two concepts together. Wonder what happened to that guy, huh? <laughs> he... he went to the cross. That's the same guy? Yeah. So what you're saying is baby Jesus is the same as cross Jesus? 
I mean, there's some time in there, right? I mean, he he grew up, he taught people, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross and came back to life, and, you know, now he lives in our hearts. That's the same guy? The Jesus that lives in our hearts? <sighs> okay, I was really, oh, wow. Okay, I never really put all those guys together, you know? Only one guy. I tell you this, here's an idea. Maybe we stop just making Christmas all just this once a year isolated thing, but we make it an ongoing story about the salvation in our hearts and lives. Up top. That's the idea. funnier every time, so if you want to come back at 11, it's something to think about. We get confused. Boy, do we. That guy was crazy confused. We get confused as well. And it's not just us. The disciples were really, were confused also because when Jesus shifts the conversation away from the things of the earth and he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, this is a lot for the disciples to take in. And in particular, one of the disciples, Thomas. Thomas is the guy in the group for whom the glass is always half empty, right? Uh, we've got our oddball, who is Jesus, and now we've got Thomas, who is our Debbie Downer, if you will. And so Thomas always sees the negative in everything, and he always wants everyone else to see the negative as well. He's not content uh, for just other people um, to not know about how negative things actually are, so he has to share this. So when Jesus says to them, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back for you, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas gets super defensive, and I imagine when he says, he says, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? I imagine there's also a little bit of, Jesus, I have no idea what you're even talking about, right? So I don't know where you, I, I don't understand any of this, so how could I possibly know the way to where you are going? And Jesus, in his infinite patience, with the, the, with the disciples, with Thomas, and with us as well. In his infinite patience, Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And what's more, Jesus says, if you really know me, you know the Father. Again, no one but God could say something like that. And I think it's really important that we think about the context of the conversation that Jesus was having with the disciples because the worldview of the disciples at that time was that the only way to the Father was by following the 600 and some rules that they had started out with the Big Ten and then over time more and more were added 
to those. And they ended up with a list of 600 and some rules that they were supposed to follow. And following those rules was kind of like climbing a ladder on our way to the Father. That was the prevailing worldview at that time. That was the only way they knew how to make their way to the Father. But Jesus, God here with us, had a completely different message. He said, I am the way to the Father. One guy, me, not 600 and some rules that you need to try and figure out how to follow. One guy, me, I am the way. And by the way, if you know me, you know the Father. This was a hands-out, open invitation that Jesus gave to the disciples. And it's a hands-out, arms-open-wide invitation that Jesus gives to us. And so many times, Christians who maybe have their heart in the right place, maybe not, I, I don't know. But they'll use this verse, I am the, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And they use it kind of as a bully stick, and they're kind of saying, Jesus is over here and he's the way, and if you're not over here on this way, if you're over here on this way, I hope you like it hot, pal, because the right way is over here and it's Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus was saying openly, I am the way, I am the way, but it was an open invitation. There was no threat in those words that Jesus gave. Jesus invited and he encouraged and he said, I want to give you a life. Trying to follow all those rules, that's not a life. That's exhausting. I want to give you life. This time of year, I think that for Christians, the Christmas season can be this serious tension between celebrating what Christmas is, which is God coming to earth in, the, uh, in Jesus, God coming to be with us. There's that um, fact about Christmas, and there's also the fact that some people just don't see it that way. They see the holidays differently. They celebrate different holidays, or they participate in Christmas because it's kind of hard to avoid it. Um, but Christ is not the focal point of their celebration. I used to work in a retail environment, and this was between 15 and 20 years ago, and we would be told by our uh, managers and all the way through the company or whatever to say happy holidays because we want to be polite, we want to be welcoming to people, but we don't want to offend someone, so we say happy holidays. And not every time, but a lot of times, someone would kind of give me a hard time about that. And I did have one person one time say, well, if I would have known that you were going to say happy holidays, I wouldn't have bought all this stuff. <laughs> and I um, was less patient than I am now. I'd like to think that's transformation. And I said, if you'd like to return it, I would gladly do that return for you. And he took his bag and he left, so whatever. I guess he wasn't as upset about uh, my happy holidays greeting as, as maybe he appeared to be. But the thing is, we as Christians, sometimes in the way that we twist uh, I am the way, the truth, and life, sometimes with Christmas, we get a little bit bent out of shape. And sometimes we make it what it isn't supposed to be when we get adamant about how people respond to that. Jesus said in John 13, 35 to the disciples, he said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. Not by keeping Christ in Christmas, but they will know you are the disciples by your love. And the one thing that I love about this community, about the Hope Des Moines community, is that so many of you totally and completely get that. 
from the pictures of the WizKids celebration that happened on Friday and the way you got involved in that celebration, from the Breakfast Club and the way so many people are known and loved and cared for in that ministry and the way you all um, just embrace that we are all the same as sons and daughters of the King. You get it. The way that you care for children and celebrate with the kids when they come up here to sing you some songs that don't sound anything like Christmas songs that you know. But you clap and you have a good time and, and uh, you love. You get that putting Christ in Christmas is a 12-month adventure. It doesn't just happen in December. And so that's so awesome. So many of you do things that are outside of even the walls of the church, and you serve in your communities. And maybe John and I don't even know what you're up to, but we hear rumors about it, and it's amazing. And you make the world a brighter place for the way that you love, the way that you serve others. <clears throat> in the Christmas season, it can be kind of it can be kind of a lonely time, right? Because we live in this position of now and not yet. That yes, Christ, God came into the world, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has been here. Sin and death have been defeated and conquered. And yet, they're pretty mad about it, right? And so the devil goes to a lot of effort to make sure that things get stirred up. And in particularly at Christmas, it's particularly, we feel it more, I think. We have this sense of how Jesus came into the world and we long for that kingdom. We long for that place that's prepared for us in the Father's house. We know that it's there and yet we know that here so many things are so broken and so many things are not happening the way we want them to. And I think Christmas has a way of just taking those things and just amplifying them times like a hundred and I don't know for sure why that happens, but I think there are a couple of things going on. First, we're just exposed to people more. We're exposed to folks getting together and wanting to celebrate and be happy. And yesterday, uh, my family celebrated Christmas with my husband's side of the family. And they are wonderful, awesome people. And the thing that I noticed as we were having our conversations, and they all sound a little bit like this. How are you guys? Well, we're good, good, yeah. You? Yeah, everything's really good. Yeah, how are the kids? Oh, they're good, kids are good. Yeah, how's school? Awesome. Yeah, school's going good. How about you guys? Yeah, you know, we're kind of excited for break, but yeah, for the most part, school's going pretty good. Awesome, good, good to chat. And we kind of rotate through and have a very similar conversation, like however many times based on the number of people that are there, right? And so we get this sense that everybody else is really good. Everybody's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And if we're not, quite as happy as we think we should be, we get this sense that, well, for sure we feel like we have to fake it over and over and over and pretend that we're going to be happy about it. And the other thing that happens at the holidays is when we gather and when we get together, our losses are just that much more in our face. We remember the people who aren't there with us, either because of death or because of broken relationships, and it just brings all of it up. And it's so, it can be so hard and so painful. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says, I get, I have felt this heartache. There is darkness, but the light shines in the darkness. Jesus says, I am that light, I am the way, I am the life that you want to have. I see you. I see it. 
and I love you. <clears throat> when we experience these different things, when we experience feeling this kind of sadness, and we think that everybody else around us is so happy, 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 and we're not, it has the ability, it, it, it isolates us, right? We pull in to ourselves because we're afraid to let folks know maybe what we're really thinking or feeling or how really hard it is. We pull into ourselves and we isolate. And the more that we do that, the more that we isolate, this narrative that we've made up that we're the only ones becomes more and more true because we, on accident, make it true. I have a really ridiculous example of this. So it is holiday concert season for the children. Uh, we have four kids in our home, and everyone has had some sort of a concert or performance in the last week or two, and so we've had kind of a busy season. On Tuesday, uh, my oldest daughter had her chorus concert, and she's a freshman at uh, Valley Southwoods, so she had this all high school chorus concert with Valley High School. And she was so pumped. It was her first high school concert. It was gonna be, she loves music, it's her thing, it's what she does, so she was so excited about this concert. And I knew how excited she was, and I really wanted to be that excited too, right? And for about the first hour, <laughs> I was very excited. Somewhere after the first hour, the rest of the kids had gone home because, you know, <laughs> been an hour already and it was approaching bedtime. So the rest of the family had gone home. We had anticipated this. We brought two cars for this very reason. So the, the rest of the family had gone home and I'm sitting there and I, look, as I'm sitting there in the auditorium, by every minute, I'm pretty sure the temperature is going up by a full degree every minute. And did I mention we were in the second hour? It's getting hotter and hotter. The songs, the notes, I swear to you, are getting higher and higher. And I'm also not kidding you when I tell you that I'm pretty sure the beats per measure were going from 30 to 29. In other words, they were very slow songs, and they were very high, and it was very hot in there, right? And so I'm looking around, and I would have almost at this point given anything for someone to like call out an evacuation drill. Like That would have been a gift from Jesus at that point. But however, that clearly was not going to happen. And I'm looking around, and I am, I kid you not, I look around, and what I see is parents on the edge of their seats sitting attentively and just clapping their hearts out. And I thought, oh my goodness, I am the only parent in this place who is being tortured right now. Everyone else is having the time of their life, and I am somehow not the kind of mom I should be. Now, isn't this ridiculous? But I was doing a really good job of telling myself that narrative. If I loved my kid more, I would be having the time of my life right now. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, i got to get some air. <laughs> so that's what I did. During the applause, I got up, and I got some air, and I was walking around a little bit, and I came back to the auditorium, and I'm like, nope, not ready yet. So I went back and got some more air, and I'm standing outside the door. And concert etiquette, you know, says that you wait until the applause, and then when people are applauding, then you can go in and find your seat. And so I'm standing there, and I'm waiting, and I'm convinced I'm, I'm going to be ready. And this little adorable, perfect-looking grandmother comes up to the door. Picture the most kindest, sweetest grandmother you've ever seen in your life. This is the, the woman who came up to the door, and she says, Oh, shoot. They're still singing. <laughs> <laughs> 
she says, she continues, I guess we'll have to wait to go in. And I looked at her because I wasn't totally sure how to take that, right? I wasn't sure if she, there was sarcasm or if she was like, oh, seriously, shoot, they're still singing. I have to wait out here. I, I wasn't sure. So I looked at her with this kind of blank look on my face, and then she said, oh, I'm sorry, that probably wasn't very nice of me. <laughs> and I'm like, you're my people. Thank you. I am so glad to see you. And so at that moment, I knew that I wasn't alone, right? I went back into this auditorium. It's not that the music changed. It was still high. It was still slow. And it was still hot in there. But I knew that I wasn't alone because if the perfect grandma was not having the best time, then it was totally acceptable for me to be like racing to get out of there, right? I looked around the auditorium and I realized that it wasn't that I was a bad mom, that these other people were better parents than me. I realized that they were better pretenders than me. <laughs> and I am perfectly okay with that. I can live with that. That's no big deal. The idea is we isolate ourselves. We think that we're the only ones who experience the sadness and the defeat and the anxiety. We think that we're the only ones and we talk ourselves into that. And so when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, I can't hear in those words that Jesus is saying, get it together, snap out of it, and let's go. I can't see it. That, that image of Jesus doesn't mesh with the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. I love this contrast of Jesus as an adult right before his death saying, I am the way and the truth and the life with the infant Jesus in the manger. If you think about it, there's nothing more helpless and defenseless and powerless than a human infant. Now, I recognize that if you have babies at home and you can't remember the last time you got a good night's sleep, that little terrorist feels pretty powerful. I get that. But a human infant without someone to care for him or her is defenseless and powerless. And the Jesus that we worship, the God of the universe who gave up his divine privileges to become a baby in a manger, the one who's willing to give up all of that for no other reason than to be with you and I forever in eternity, that's the life I want with that guy. That sounds pretty awesome. <clears throat> this week, um, on Friday, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And whatever that looks like for you, I hope that you spend a few days this week thinking about what this means, Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean that the God of the universe broke through and came to earth for you and I to show us the way, to show us what truth is, and to show us how to have a full life. And as you prepare your heart this week and think about what that means for you, remember what it means for the entire world. Whether they know that Jesus is the way or the truth and the life right now or not, the fact that it is, that Jesus is all of those things, it means something, whether people want to acknowledge that it does or not. And it means that we show them love, that we serve, that we get our hands dirty in the way that Jesus did. I have one final video I want to show you, partly because I really like it, and then also because it gives us the idea 
of what God breaking into our world meant to God's people. And it gives us an idea that we are part of a story that is so much bigger and so much more full and broad than we could ever imagine. We'll watch this and then we'll get ready to go. The way, the truth, and the life came for you. Came. Gosh, that video really gets me. All of humanity had been crying out, still cries out. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Come to me. Receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.